0: close out the series on 1st to 3rd John. We're in 3rd John. It is the shortest uh, book in uh, the Bible. I forgot the numbers now, but it's shorter than 2nd John. I think it's 219 Greek words, and then it was 245. Uh, I enjoy sports. I enjoy watching sports. I wouldn't consider myself a fanatic about sports, so I enjoy watching football. If I miss the game, that's okay. But Uh, I like watching football because I understand football, and I can watch a basketball game. uh, I get the idea of what needs to go on, when to get excited, when not to get excited. And I'll be honest, I find hockey uh, fascinating as well, but I cannot understand the game uh, at all. I have a hard time knowing where the puck is, and even when I do, I struggle knowing when to get excited Uh, Typically, I'll jump up thinking something great is going to happen, look around, and all the hockey fans are refilling their snack bowl, uh, and so it's pointless. And then when I'm refilling my snack bowl, which happens a lot, um, the greatest play in in that team's history unfolds in front of their eyes, and and I've missed it. Uh, But hockey has one very noticeable component that other team sports does not have, and it's really easy to follow. Uh, Hockey allows you to punch your opponent at times. Um, You apparently are allowed to fight, though it comes with some penalty time. And now I remember, this is going back many moons ago, uh, I went to a minor league hockey game while I was in college, and I went with other non-hockey knowledgeable people, and so when you show up at a hockey game and everyone knows that you have no idea what's going on besides a bunch of guys in helmets and, and ice skates uh, down there uh, skating around. And so they pointed somebody out to me and I still remember. They said, hey, um, and I, I can't remember the guy's name. I don't even remember the, the name of the team. Uh, but they said, you need to notice that guy on the home team. He's their fighter. He's known for fighting. And I think his number was 24. Um, so knowing his reputation, and I remember this, I don't want to admit to a bad character, but I was showing up at a hockey game, and I knew they were allowed to fight. And I remember saying to people, I hope someone fights. That was... That was on my mind, because I have no idea what they're doing other than that, but skating back and forth with sticks and chasing a little black uh, thing floating around. So I was hopeful they would fight. I was pointed out here as the fighter on the team, and his reputation was he fights, and people said, he's going to fight. That's what he does. And he lived up to it. Um, That guy ended up fighting two times that night. Um, Fight so rough that I decided I would never play hockey in my life. I mean, it was it was even for someone who went there hoping a guy would fight i was like wow that's that was rough uh, the point of this is that even though i know nothing about hockey i could catch the fights because i knew this player's reputation i knew that if i if number 24 was on the ice and i kept my eyes on 24 based on his reputation i could catch at least some component of the game, because we all understand when people fight, the game stops, the refs don't even get involved, whatever they're called in hockey, and, and they go at it. Everyone knows what's taking place. I don't remember the team's name, as I mentioned. I can't remember the player's name. I can only guess at his number, but I still remember his reputation and how he lived up to it. John is writing this third letter, and he's writing from Ephesus to another church under his care and they had a need, and they needed to stand in truth or to stand for truth. Why? Because an influential and powerful person in their church has resisted truth and rebelled against the exercise of that truth. He has a, re- he has a reputation of fighting against truth and become quite noticeable and memorable. He would not welcome preachers and teachers who had letters, by the way, of recommendation from John and from Ephesus and actually attacked those who did show hospitality. And John wants the church there to know that they need to stand up in truth and resist this individual who is known for, has a reputation for rebelling against truth, even though he was powerful and influential. So he's writing a letter to a church, it's addressed to to Gaius, but its its broader perspective is the whole church. Uh, penning a letter to encourage that church, and the teaching in it to confront a guy who was influential, who was powerful. We know that he had. Um, some semblance of power. I don't know if maybe the church met in this guy's house uh, because he's kicking people out of church. And so he writes this letter to tell this church, to show this church the need to stand in truth or to stand for truth. And he, he does this and you can trace his teaching in 3 John by looking at the reputations of the four individuals featured in it. There is a guy named Gaius who received the letter. There's Diotrephes, who provoked the letter, Demetrius, who carried the letter, and then John, who wrote the letter. Each of them show us things to do and things to avoid in our stand for truth. If we trace their reputations, if we focus our attention in on them, we can know exactly what needs to be done. So, with all that said, we're going to begin with Gaius. And the thing you can note about him is he's a commendable servant of truth. He encompasses the bulk of the letter, verses 1 through 8. Now, it's a normal letter. There's an introduction. There's a body. There's a conclusion. Uh, this is another one, just like Second John. Uh, short, fits on one sheet of paper, so to speak. Uh, quick, brief. And so every component of the letter kind of speaks. John is not wasting or mincing any words. So he begins, "...the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth." Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved, thou hast faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers. In other words, you have acted in a faithful way to these people who preach the gospel and bring truth, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. And that word there is pointing to pagans or those that are lost. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. Now, Gaius, Gaius here, is a commendable servant of the truth, and with this letter addressed to him, it's helpful uh, to understand who he is, Uh, because obviously Paul, or not Paul, I'm getting all mixed up here, Um, I don't know what Theron was smelling here or left behind, but we're all getting all jumbled up in our words, I love to blame Theron for it, you know, if you mess up in preaching, blame the other guy, right? So um, John is writing to him and obviously addressing him directly, and that tells us something, about this individual. One, obviously, he's being entrusted with a very important truth and a calling. Uh, he is called one of my children. John says, You're my child. And he's referencing uh, a connection that he has with him, a close family type bond. And it makes sense that, that this individual, Gaius, was converted under the ministry, the direct ministry of John. Two, the fact that he is the recipient of the letter with words and instructions for the whole church, speaks to his leadership role in the church. We're going to confront a guy who's a leader in the church, who represents, in in a way, those who are going to corrupt the truth. And John is writing to Gaius and saying, hey, you're a leader in the church. You have a commendable activity and action, but he's really encouraging him to continue standing to take action. Why? Because of the negative actions taken by Diotrephes. Gaius is the one in direct confrontation with the other leader who is being sinful. To put it in other words, who Gaius is and how he acts bears direct connection to the health and function of this local body of believers. If Gaius isn't going to stand, John is basically pointing out that the church is going to have a hard time standing as well, that he is the first line of defense. And look, he should be. He is a leader in the church. And another leader in the church is doing things that are sinful wrong, negative, and against truth. Now, thankfully, Gaius is a man worth commending and gives us insight into who we need to be to stand for truth in our local church. He has characteristics that we need to emulate, that all of us need to manifest in our lives. Uh, First, we find that he is spiritual. Look at verse 2 again. He says, and this is all part of John's introduction. I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. John, in his greeting, wishes Gaius to be as healthy and financially stable as he is spiritual. And John's not trying to be tricky here. He's not trying to be negative. He's not trying to be ugly. He's not trying to tell uh, the community that he thinks Gaius is sick. Some people have thought that like, oh, he must have been sick because John was wishing him to be healthy. (laughs) You've wished someone's health. I hope you're doing okay. I hope things are going well. I don't think we approach people and say, I hope you're sick and I hope you lose all your money and that your car breaks down. (laughs) That's not the typical thing. And, And remember, this is a letter. But John reaches out and connects to what is known about Gaius, and that is his soul, his heart is aligned with his Savior's heart and will. And he's saying to him, I want you to be as healthy as you are healthy in your spiritual journey. The Greek behind the word prospereth means a good road or a good journey. So in John's greeting, in a classic, I hope things are going well, he links it to the spiritual life of this individual. And he's basically saying, you're on the right direction, the right path spiritually. He was growing in his maturity and service for his Lord and Savior. And so John wished, and that word wished could be prayed, that his health and overall well-being would mimic that same journey. He wanted him to be headed in the right direction and I just want you to realize this. This was a kind statement. Nothing could have been nicer for John to say to Gaius than to say, I hope your health and your finances and your situation matches how you are spiritually. I'm sure you can understand where I'm going with this one. Because this is the question I put myself. And actually, the thing that jumps out the most to me in this letter uh, would I want my financial well-being and my physical health to match my spiritual life? Because I don't want you to miss the point about who Gaius is. In the introduction, he is the well-loved Gaius. And then John says, I hope you're as healthy and financially fit as you are spiritually. <laughs> I read one commentator, it said, If that was true of every Christian, There'll be some people who'll be sick and destitute that we see prospering, and there'll be some people we see poor and struggling that would have millions and have health to live to 120. And and I thought again, could we, could you, would you dare to have your financial well being and your health match your spiritual life? <laughs> John wasn't trying to play games here. He wasn't trying to be tricky he could honestly say about this individual, I hope you are as physically healthy and well-to-do as you are in your spiritual life. Well, as we saw clearly in 2 John and actually all through 1 John, the apostle is concerned with truth. And by truth, I mean biblical truth. And it would be impossible for a commended servant of Christ to not be both spiritual and then the other word I have there is truthful, verses 3 through 4. John, in these two verses, makes it abundantly clear that Gaius lived up to the call given in Second John. And I'm not going to re-preach 2 John's sermon, <coughs> but I wanted to pull two points from that sermon that we see in verses 3 through 4. One, Gaius was saturated in truth. The brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee. So as we look at a character, and again, I I do want you to see this. We're going to talk about Demetrius, and actually uh, a lot of emphasis is put on Demetrius, and he is a reputable person. We're going to talk about this. But what's often missed in 3 John is at the point of the letter, the personality that takes up most of the letter happens to be Gaius. It's the guy receiving the letter. And the reason for that, as I mentioned before, (coughs) is he is the direct confrontation. He is the man of the hour, so to speak, that is going to confront the liar that is diatrophized. He is the one to which the church is going to look, the example they're going to need to follow. He's going to have to lead them in standing in truth. And so John spends most of his time talking about this individual and and we have to recognize that even in the introduction, he's saying, you're on the right path. You're growing in your faith. You're moving in the right direction. By contrast, you can know that Diotrephes is not moving in the right direction and represents someone actually who is lost. And we'll talk about that when we get to him. But Gaius is spiritual. So much so that John can say with confidence, I hope you are as healthy as you are spiritual. And then he moves on and talks about his character, who he is, what is his reputation, and he's truthful. And I'm not talking about just the idea that he tells the truth, but that he lives out biblical truth. He's saturated in truth, so much so that the people who have come to this church, and then return to Ephesus, have testified of the truth that is in thee. It is now part of who he is. It's not just that he talks about truth, it's that he lives out truth, and we talked about it. Now, going down to the second point from last week, one of the points, he was living in the truth, or he's living the truth. It says, thou walkest in the truth. Verse four, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth, which sounds a lot like second John and what we're getting a picture of again. And John never moves away from this. That biblical truth is critical, that we're gospel oriented people as the children of God. And so we get the personal connect. You're one of my converts, so to speak. We use it that way. Really, there's a connection for from John to Gaius because he knows with his direct ministry, that's when Gaius was saved. And, and so he's saying to him, your life lines up with truth. And it's a truth that permeated every component of his life. So as you read this letter and you think John's writing to it, he's almost just patting Gaius on the back. And I would use a different word. He's encouraging Gaius to continue with what he's doing. He's sharing facts with him. Have you ever had that when you're standing for what's right? It's nice to know someone is behind you, that someone believes in this, to have the affirmation that what you're doing is the correct thing. That's what John is telling him. You're on the right journey, you are prospering, you're on the good road. That's what that word means in Greek, (coughs) broken down. You're on the good road spiritually and you are a truthful person. God's truth is in your life. It's in you. People talk about what they see. They see the gospel lived out in your life. And so you're saturated with the gospel, and you're living out the gospel. He was spiritually minded, living out biblical truth, and then he was constantly faithful. Verses 5 through 8. His reputation was one of love and support for those who came preaching and teaching the true, and I put unpolluted, gospel message. (coughs) I love to add the unpolluted because in our day and age, and I don't want to go on the same uh, side note that I had last week, though it was critical, but we have a polluted gospel today. We have people who used to preach the gospel, who have added in society and added another layer to the gospel. (coughs) These guys had not added another layer. They were gospel-centered preachers and teachers. And they came back and spoke of his love to the church at Ephesus, where John is writing from, and his backing for their work. Now, John commends this work of Gaius because those traveling preachers he backed have gone out preaching Christ in the fullness of his truth. That's what it means for his namesake. It's not just that they named the name of Jesus when, when it references his namesake, it references the complete work of Christ. So don't forget what John wrote about in 1 John. <coughs> we dealt with false teachers. We dealt with people who were Gnostics. They were elites. They were above. They had special knowledge. And so they looked down at the church and said, well, you're not like us. You don't have special knowledge. And then they added this thing. Oh, Jesus was just a man. And then Christ, the Messiah, came upon him at his baptism and then left before his crucifixion. And so when John says these preachers came out in his name, they're saying, he's saying to them, these were people that preached the full Christ, the complete work They preached every attribute of him and all his attributes and all his glory. They preached his incarnation to his crucifixion, to his resurrection. They had the gospel correct when they preached. And they went out for his name's sake without taking help from any pagans. People who were lost, people who were of the world, they they were not seeking support or Um, I call endorsement from anyone else except for the church. A lot of people would go out and if you're a good teacher or a talker, you're an order, you would be supported by different people. Because if you're a good enough talker, people want to listen to you no matter what you're talking about. And these guys didn't seek the endorsement of anyone that was lost or outside the church, but instead sought the endorsement of John the Apostle, and the church in Ephesus to go out. They didn't try to get other income stream there. And his encouragement and the encouragement from John to Gaius is this. He called on him in verse 8 to receive such. In other words, to keep on doing what you're doing. And, and the word receive actually uh, could almost be better translated to underwrite them, to support them as they advance the gospel. Let me... In our word, when I say receive somebody, it means you welcome them, right? So if someone walks in our church, I say, hey, receive people that visit. And when I ask someone to be in the welcome center, I'm, I'm hoping they shake their hand, they smile. We're glad to see you. Would you like a cup of coffee? Would you want some snacks? By the way, coffee and snacks are in the kitchen. if you ever wondering where the snacks are? But <clears throat> you go through, and that's, that's our vision of receive, right? And we help someone find a seat. If someone comes to our home, we might give them a meal. But when John writes receive he's not just talking about being welcoming. He's actually talking about being participatory. And so he's saying, you need to receive people who advance the gospel. And and the word is instead of it just being a welcome to my house flavor, it is now a underwriting of their ministry. You support them as they advance the gospel. And so John was encouraging Gaius at the end of all this accolades, all the things that he's doing right. He's saying, now keep, underwriting the ministry. And the call is to be actively involved. He's saying to Gaius, give them a platform and be involved in their needs because they're doing the work of the ministry. And let's be honest, let's wipe out the idea of ministry because we get all caught up in full-time, part-time, half-time, whatever, when it comes to ministry. And he's saying "These, these individuals are going out for the sake of Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel. And when we encounter people like that and they come to work, we want to be underwriters of that ministry Uh, to use a political idea here. He's saying, don't give them a casual endorsement. Don't stand up and say, Oh, from my perspective, I'm for such and such. Don't give a casual endorsement. Instead, get involved in the campaign, go out campaigning for him. So if you were um, working in a political campaign. You could be someone who says, I endorse this person. This is the person I'm for. Or you could be a person who's pounding the doors, uh, pounding the doors, pounding the streets, right, knocking on doors, handing out flyers, making calls. That's what he's saying. He says, get beyond a casual welcome. Get beyond just saying this person is who I believe. I'm good with this guy. He's good to go. And instead, if they're advancing Christ's name and in, in the fullness of who he is, and the fullness of the gospel, then be involved with it, underwrite that ministry. Because standing for truth is active. It is never neutral. That's the point he's making in verse 8. The fact is, we're not just keeping the peace. Instead, we're to be battling and participating in truth. And to do that, you have to be spiritually minded, biblically grounded, truth grounded, and faithfully active. So I had this question for us. If we looked at our lives right now, would it be defined as a life actively engaged in standing and promoting God's truth, or would it be described as neutral? I think that as a church, especially here in the United States, we view neutrality as activity. We don't participate in society, so therefore we are actually battling against the lies of society. And instead, we're just sitting there doing nothing, We endorse the truth, but we're not actively involved in promoting the truth. We're not on its side. We're just not on the side of society. Would we define ourselves as active or neutral? Are you underwriting the gospel work as you should? And notice I didn't ask, are you underwriting the gospel ministry? Because I know we all can find ways that we support the gospel ministry. You could even say, I'm here on Sunday, Kenny. There's my support. I give to the church, Kenny. There's my support. I put a little formula together. A simple formula is to look where you spend your time, money, and energy, run a percentage on each, and see where your real underwriting is going. Do you underwrite the gospel ministry as you should? Then just analyze what you do, where you spend your energy, where you spend your time, and go from there. And I know right away people say, well, I have to go to work. I agree with you. You need to go to work. So scrap out the work time. Go from there. The fact is, you know what you underwrite by the time, money, and energy you put into it. You see, we need to be actively standing in truth because we will encounter Diotrephes, a corrupt servant of self. His name means Zeus nursed. Put it in perspective. He's of Zeus to nourish. That's how you would break it down in Greek. So he is nourished or promoted or taken care of by Zeus. Interestingly, he either chose not to change his name. Many in the church had pagan names. If you go to a Greek city, who do you name your kids after? Now, we live in a society where we name our kids oftentimes with Bible names, right? Or family names. In Holland, you just perpetuate the same bad name generation after generation. My dad broke that and gave us all amazing names. Actually, we just got named after my mom's brothers, so just switched teams, I guess, on that one. But, but, what, but we don't understand. They would name themselves after pagan gods or have these kind of connections. And so as the church would advance in a city that was pagan, oftentimes when a, when a Christian was baptized, they would take a Christian name. They would take a different name, a name that would be maybe a charming Christian, or you see even Saul goes to Paul. You see this change because name was not just a label we put on. It's not like a sticky note, like, what's your name? I'm Kenny. We we have a less of an attachment to what we're called. And the fact is, if you don't like your name, you go to court, you change your name, right? So you can get a new name. And so we think of it as a sticker we put on our shirt that lets all the strangers know who I am, and then we go from there. Uh, To them, names had much more significance. And so as the church was reaching into these pagan areas, and we don't even understand that concept of being in a completely pagan city, they would change their name. But Diotrephes has either stuck with his pagan name or, and I, don't, I can see this being possible, John used his pagan name because he's acting like a pagan and typifying that behavior in the church. So one way or the other, this is a man who's stuck with pagan roots, or John is making a really bombastic point and saying, you're a pagan in the church. He's rejected John's letter of commendation for the teachers. That's the statement I wrote unto the church. That's not a lost letter that John had written that we're missing. But instead, John is saying, I wrote to the church. I sent with those teachers recommendation. It wasn't that hard to accept these teachers. The apostle John, the only living apostle at this point in time, has written and said, these teachers teach the gospel. And he's chosen instead to engage in worldly ambition. That's verse 9. Diotrephes wants the attention. He wants to be up front. He wants to control what the church hears and believes. And I want you to see something. He has an unhealthy desire to be the God to this local church. If it is John using his pagan name to make a point, he used it correctly. Because Diotrephes has a pagan desire. Is to have a role that is designed for Christ, but that he wants for himself. John makes clear that his rejection of these preachers and teachers who serve only Christ and preach fully the doctrine of Christ, who've been affirmed by the church and John, constitute a direct rejection of truth and the apostolic authority of John himself. And he says that you receiveth us not, or to word it another way, is not accepting of us. You don't accept them. And you might say, well, maybe you just didn't want some other preacher to preach on a Sunday. And we have to, again, disconnect ourselves from our culture and recognize that they always had multiple teachers coming in. And there was a lot of different people teaching in the church at that time. <coughs> His behavior... Now, is more fully explained in verse 10. So we go from the ambition side. You want something. And I'll read those verses now. I wrote unto the church, "...but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, pratting against us with malicious words, and not content therewith. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church." Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Which, by the way, that's John's condemnation against Diotrephes and why he lives up to his name. You see, in verse 10, he goes from wanting the preeminence, the ambition, and now we describe what he's doing, verse 10, as worldly aggression. This verse starts with a pretty steely tone from John. And remember, John is that, he's not Paul. Paul always just hammers it right. He just drives right to the point. John is the guy walking with you. He's much more, uh, I wouldn't say casual, but he's much more familiar. But that position allows him when he, he, he locks in, when he gets when I say to the point or steely in the tone, it almost emphasizes it even more. He writes, if I come, and in Greek, that's a hypothetical statement. John wants to come, but his advanced age and declining health likely make it a difficult reality. But he says, if I come, if I could actually do this, I will remember his deeds. And he's saying that because he's, he's telling the church that Diotrephes needs to be and will be held accountable and culpable because he's done a few things. One, he speaks against truth, pratting against us with malicious words. And what that means is this, he's saying harmful words that gradually build in their destruction. This is not an outburst. This is not diatrophies on a Sunday morning saying, I'm not gonna let those guys in to talk. I don't want nothing to do with them. This is not an angry outburst. This is a planned campaign against truth. And he's laying foundational things. And what is John saying? He has been trying to undermine truth in the church. That he has been trying to lay a foundation where no one will listen to truth. They will only listen to him. And now you understand verses 1 through 8. Gaius is the guy that has to confront a massive liar and a deceiver that's, that's been embedded in the church and actually is a, another leader in the church. These are not personality differences. It's not that he doesn't like the preachers and teachers that have come. This instead speaks to a person who is undermining doctrinal truth. And what John is trying to bring to bear, and he only talks about diatrophies. I put it as three verses, but the, the last verse is his actual application of what he's just said about this man. He's trying to make sure they understand that this guy is sowing seeds that are anti-truth. That he lines up with the Antichrist and the deceiver from 2 John. Because a guy that is going to speak in a way that undermines truth is also going to reject the bearers of truth. So he prats against us. He speaks in a malicious way. And that means don't take the intensity to be how intense he was in one statement, but instead he builds layer upon layer to make sure he destroys truth. And a guy like that is obviously going to reject someone who's going to come and speak the truth and speak the gospel straight to them. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren. He does not accept these teachers at all. And then he goes the final step. He condemns those who support the bearers of truth. He undermines truth. He goes against bearers of truth and then he condemns anyone who supports the bearers of truth. He forbiddeth them that would. In other words, he says to the church, don't extend hospitality to these preachers. Don't put them in your house. Don't feed them. You ever had that with somebody who, like a friend will draw a line? If you're friends with that guy, I'm not going to be friends with you. That kind of idea. If you go trace back to middle school, you might get there. (laughs) But he goes one step further. Don't extend hospitality. And if you do, I'm kicking you out of the church. Now, church discipline is a, is a real thing, but it's supposed to be for someone who is going against truth. You know what church discipline is for? It's for diatrophies. And that's what John is trying to show them. He's going to forbid them and he's going to cast them out of the church. It's, just, it's not just that he has the wrong disposition or that he has his own perspective. It's that he wants to control everyone else's perspective as well. Remember I said it before, his ambition was to be the God for this church? He wants to tell them what to think. He doesn't want them to be independent in Christ, to to think of Scripture on their own. Remember there was believers, right? The Bereans who looked at Scripture to see if what was said was true. Diotrephes wants none of that. You do what I tell you to do. You believe what I tell you to believe. And what does that sound like? sounds like a cult, because that's exactly what Gnosticism would be. And, and there's no hint. Uh, John, in this letter, doesn't tell us what his doctrine is. He, we just know his, his against-truth positioning. Uh, historically, they talk about him having Gnostic leanings. In other words, he was starting to feel elite, starting to think that he had some special revelation, that only he should share it, which makes sense then if he's attacking the church this way. <laughs> And he says to people, you think what I tell you to think. And he doesn't even try to cover it up. He's not even, he's not even uh, smooth about it. He just says, don't do it or I'll boot you out of the church, which implies a level of control. And that's why I mentioned possibly his house is the meeting place or he has influence with the person who has the house where they're meeting. John wants you to understand something, though. Diatrophies is not a small issue. And so John closes his conversation about him with encouragement to Gaius and the church about their actions, John tells them to copy what is good and not what is evil. Which sounds like a obvious statement: do what's right, don't do what's wrong. And you expect to kind of hear that in church. Um, but he's he's diving in. Don't follow what Diotrephes does, nor the methodology of coercion that he engages in. Don't do anything like him. Don't run after what's evil. And don't borrow how evil functions. Because Diotrephes said to the church, you do what I say or I will do this to you. He threatened and he attacked. And John says, don't do what he's doing. Don't be malicious. But in that same breath, he's saying, don't do what he does. Even in the exercise of what's right, don't engage in this coercion. And then John puts the nail in the coffin, so to speak, about Diotrephes. He that doeth good is of God. And then he says this, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. And that idea of seeing God is not that you're getting visions, it's that you have a relationship with God. And what is John saying? This was a false believer. He is a liar. His destiny for eternity is one of eternal punishment and separation from the Savior. He will not see God. He has not seen God. He doesn't know God. He's separated from God. Diotrephes has shown that he's not a true believer and no amount of church leadership or involvement will change that. I want us to remember something about this guy. He's maybe even believes himself to be a believer. He's duped himself. He's duped the church. He's involved and he's a leader in the church. And John says, he's not seen God. He doesn't know the truth what he's doing shows that he doesn't know the truth. Now, in light of this man's action and character, it prods us to examine ourselves. Do we jockey for power in the church? Do we jockey for control? Do we fight to have the preeminence? Do we manipulate truth to keep it in our control? You ever done that one? See, he grabbed truth and he says, I don't want those guys to preach the gospel because I have a slight take on this that I don't, want, I don't want something else taught. But then we have to be honest because when we read this letter, we either want to be John, Demetrius, or Gaius, and we never want to associate with Diotrephes because who wants to be the Zeus-nursed guy? right? But the reality is, is we have to examine ourselves, and that's what Paul does so well in Corinthians is examine yourself. Take a look. And I'm not here trying to throw seeds of doubt on salvation and belief, but John pretty much just hammered it home and said, It didn't matter that this guy's in church leadership. It doesn't matter that you maybe thought he was a believer all this time. He is showing that he has not seen God, he doesn't have a relationship with him. We know his destiny. Is this guy's actions point out clearly that this heart does not know Christ? He is the exact opposite of Guy's. He hath not seen God. And then I put secondly, so first, diatrophies should drive us to examine ourselves, to ask a question. I don't know how many people I've talked to that tell me, Well, I'll go to church. Well, I believe in God. I must be a Christian. I'm American, right? It's the most American thing to be, to be a Christian. Everything under the sun. And, and if nothing will strip that away from you and say, you don't know Christ, it's the church leader who went against truth. And John says, you don't know Christ as your Savior. You've not seen God. But the second thing for us as a church is, is a reality in this letter Because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit to help the direct audience, which is this church, but it's also written to us to recognize that when we encounter a diatrophies in the church, John encourages us to be quick to deal with it. Don't lollygag. Don't bend. Don't compromise. Don't chat. John is basically telling Gaius, kick diatrophies out of church. That's who needs to go. Because he's doing what's wrong. And this condemnation of a wicked leader in the church, one who exemplifies by his action a condition of lostness, is followed by now an individual who serves the truth. And if you've ever done the good news, bad news, good news, right? That's what what John does. We've got a great guy. We've got a horrible guy. Now we're going to have another good guy. And then we're going to see a little bit about John's character. And so it's followed by this individual who serves the truth, which is Demetrius, which, by the way, we've, I've, I've met Demetrius's, but I haven't met any diatrophies, right? There's no one. And if you know someone, Zeus nurse person, maybe change your name. I'm just kidding. You can have whatever name you want. But Demetrius is a committed servant of Christ, and that's verse 12. Demetrius, Demetrius hath good report of all men. And actually, if you're reading in Greek, it just says, Demetrius hath good report of all. And that speaks to all, pagan and Believer alike, and of the truth itself, yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. <clears throat> and what we find here in Demetrius is someone who is reputable. He is above reproach in society. Now, that doesn't mean that society is happy with him. Because in our world today, our society is, is very unhappy with us as believers. We are labeled in a million different ways. And so I'm not saying that society is happy with you. It's that society can't really throw a biblical stone against you. And that's what Demetrius has. He's in Ephesus, which by the way, is highly pagan, has one of the ancient wonders of the world. in I think it's Diane and, and the um, worship of her. And so there's idolatry that permeates the culture and it's part of the tourist attraction and the money they make. Yet in that society, Demetrius has a good reputation with everybody. No one can throw a stone against his character and they can't throw a biblical stone. And then beyond that, he is committed to biblical truth. So here's a guy that that is above reproach, which Paul calls us to be, be above reproach. So reading Paul's letter on Titus and Timothy, Demetrius lines up with that. He lives that calling out. And then on top of that, he's committed to biblical truth. And then he's commended by the church in Ephesus and by John as well. He's reputable. And so in a way, John now writes a letter of recommendation for Demetrius, but the Holy Spirit chose to put that in a letter that goes to all of us to understand how to stand for truth. And how do we know how to stand for truth? By the reputation of the men who stand for truth. And he's a guy who's reputable. I put down as an action step, if someone had to describe us to another church, would we be described this way? Would you be described as someone above reproach, who's known, again, you can, just because his bio is short, don't miss the implication. Demetrius has the character that Gaius has. He's saturated in truth and he's living out the truth. That's why the truth commends him. He's committed to it. Would we be defined that way? Would we be reputable? Now, this letter closes out um, the same way that Second John does John expresses the need to talk about more things, but does not want to do so with pen and ink. And in this conclusion, we didn't have a chance to maybe pull all of it out of Second John. We get a glimpse of who the apostle is. We get to see John. And what do you see in John as a caring and counseling servant of the church? I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee. I'm not going to do this in a letter. But I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee. Our friends salute thee. Greet the friends by name. And I want you to see something about him. He's a caring and counseling servant of the church. What we find is someone that is pastoral. Now, when you hear that word, I don't want you to say, okay, good, that's your problem, Kenny. You follow along. But I want you to see in in John, the elder, as he speaks about himself as he's in the church, that he's exemplifying what we are supposed to give as believers to our church. He wants to be in their company. He wants to be face to face. He sends personal greetings from the church in Ephesus and he sends those personal greetings to people in the church there. He says, our friends here greet you. And then he says something I love. Greet the friends by name. Our collective friends here greet you. So it's personal, but it's still a little not as name by name. And then he says to Gaius, say hi, greet, salute everyone by name in the church. Very individual, very relational. And I would put the word pastoral. It's a shepherding concept. And the reality is, is we're called as believers to care and counsel the church, to take care of the church. Not only are we called to do this, We're capable of doing this. We are capable of caring for each other and counseling each other and lifting each other up and walking through life together. As a church, we are called to this and we are capable of this. We're called to be pastoral in that way. So we have to ask ourselves, do we care deeply for the church? So you want to ask, am I I able to do this? Am I doing this? Am I a part of this? Am I caring and counseling the church? Well, first you have to ask, do you care deeply for the church? By the way, if you don't answer yes to that, you got to go back to 1 John where he says you need to love one another and the church is known by its love to each other. It's It's not about condoning or accepting or compromising with the world. Actually, the world knows Christ and sees Christ by how the church cares for itself. So what we see exemplified in John is what we need to do, which then is a broadcast of the gospel to the world around us as we care for each other. But you're not going to care for the church if you don't deeply love the church. If your relationship is Sunday morning only, like, hey, I'm there and I see those people, they're odd, but I see them gone out, shake their hand, I pretend to like them, and then I'm out the door. Well, obviously, you don't care deeply for the church. But if you're going back and doing that estimate of whether you underwrite the gospel message and time, energy, et cetera, that's going to expose that as well. So do we care for the church deeply? Do we desire its company? Do we want to be in the church and among God's people? Do we want to be around them? And then do we connect personally? Because that's what John did by name. It's not this broadcast masses. It's actually people that he wanted greeted because he cared individually and as the church were to care individually. See, John wrote this group of believers to encourage them to stand in truth. There was someone in their midst, one of their leaders even, who had shifted the focus from Christ to himself and in so doing had acted against truth. This person through their worldly ambition and aggressive behavior was causing havoc and hurting the body of Christ. The reality is we will face that type of pressure. It may not be from a leader and maybe not even from within the church that we're in, but there are always diatrophies. We need to be ready and we need to be prepared to stand in and for the truth. Now, Gaius, Demetrius, and John give us a great example of what that takes. What does it take? We need to be spiritual, be truthful, be faithful, be reputable, and be pastoral. We should find our hearts aligned with Christ's will and purpose. We should find lives saturated with biblical truth that is lived out daily. We should see our active, and I underline that word, active connection to the gospel's advance. And we should be known for our faith in our community and our own church. And we should care personally for God's children. So as we close this morning, the question is, do you find those characteristics as part of your life? Because we're going to need them if we're going to completely stand in truth. Let's pray together. And Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to study, to, to look at Third John and to see uh, individuals listed here. And it's encouraging to look out of four reputations, three of them point to what we should do. That we can recognize... Um, your prodding, You're calling for us to be spiritually minded, to be aligned with your will, that we're truthful, we're, we're linked to your word, that we're faithful in supporting the ministry, coming behind the gospel advance, that we are participating in it. We're not distant, but instead we're actively in the trenches for the gospel, that we have a reputable Reputation that we're known in our community as believers, not in a negative way, but instead as a positive pointing to what the gospel can do and change a life. And that we are caring for the church, that we act in a pastoral way, recognizing that we're capable of caring and counseling, and we're also mandated to do so. And as we look at this and recognize that we'll need to stand for truth, we also see that if we, Will live out the characteristics you've given us that we will be successful, that it will bear fruit. In your precious and holy name, amen.